0: A survey of uh, regular church attenders asked the question, what book of the Bible do you most want your pastor to preach on? The answer, the book of Revelation. A companion survey, it was related, it was the same group that did this survey, uh, surveyed pastors, and they asked pastors the question, which book of the Bible are you most hesitant to preach on? The answer, the book of Revelation. Uh, The dilemma there between what people may be wanting to hear and what pastors may be sort of reluctant to give uh, sort of expresses something of the beauty and challenge that is inherent uh, in the book of Revelation. It's drama and imagery uh, naturally captivate us, intrigue us, it draws us in makes us kind of want to figure it out. And at the same time, the, the very uniqueness of it, the, the kind of strangeness of it, uh, intimidates us uh, into perhaps mostly staying away from it. And so I think that may be a, a, a common experience uh, among Bible-believing Christians, is Revelation is interesting and scary, and so we either obsess about it, trying to figure out what it all means and what events are all being sort of predict- predicted and discussed, or we just totally avoid it. Like, I'd really rather not even think about it. I'll leave that to the experts, and, uh, and I'll just get on with my life and read something that's a little plainer uh, and easier to understand. And so the, there's this inherent tension when we come to the book of Revelation. I'm really interested in it, but I'm also intimidated by it. And so what are we to do with it? And indeed, Revelation presents some interesting and unique uh, interpretive challenges uh, as we approach this book. Uh, G.K. Chesterton famously said Though St. John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. And indeed, there have been some pretty interesting uh, interpretations of the book of Revelation throughout the years that have been offered. Unfortunately, I also think we have not generally been helped by popular sort of sensationalistic approaches to the book of Revelation, thinking of uh, Hal Lindsay's book from the late 1980s, the late great planet Earth, uh, even the 90s gave us the series of novels, the left behind series of books. And generally, I think these have been unhelpful in, in coming to Revelation seriously uh, carefully, um, and without the sort of sensationalism of looking for some big, not just dramatic, uh, events, but like a way, a, a sort of almost a code, uh, which, with which to read Revelation that would sort of unlock the realities that are unfolding all around us and what God is doing as he moves pieces on his sort of global chessboard. I don't think that's a helpful way to approach the book of Revelation, and nevertheless, it is the, the way that it has far too commonly been approached, and probably particularly within the last 100 years to 200 years, uh, there's been uh, the, the sort of wild popularity of a literal sort of futurist reading of the book, uh, the rec- trying to, rec- thinking of the book as all of this is predictions of things that are going to be happening, uh, maybe all at the end of history or maybe kind of throughout history, and so now we're looking at these images in Revelation and trying to match them to current events or, uh, you know, political maneuverings and go, oh, this may, must be what's going on in uh, the book of Revelation. I don't think that those sort of popular sensationalistic approaches to Revelation are, uh, are faithful, uh, ultimately, and, and really not terribly helpful to us. So a, a few words about my approach to the book as we begin journeying through it here over the, the, the better part of this year. Uh, the first thing to say is that we must approach the book of Revelation with a respect for genre distinctives. It's Christians are, are often sort of uh, prone to say, we take the Bible literally. Um, and sort of like that's the hill that we die on, right? We will interpret the Bible literally. And I think that is a worthy sort of uh, stake to claim. Uh, If you are reading a book of the Bible that's intended to be taken literally, like a historical narrative, we should take those literally. Like I think when we read the book of Joshua, for example, and the conquest of the Canaanites through the people of Israel, um, we should take those events literally. When we read the Gospels and we see Jesus even doing crazy things like healing uh, sick people and giving sight to blind people and himself being raised from the dead, we should read those things as literally actually happening but it's it's too simplistic to say that the bible should all be taken literally because indeed many parts many books within the bible are not intended to be taken literally because they're some other genre such as poetry or wisdom revelation itself is a form of literature called apocalyptic which has its own sort of rules of, uh, of reading and understanding what's being said and the sort of ways that it operates. We'll, uh, we'll talk some more about what that means in the coming weeks as we approach certain passages where those things become clear, but we have to respect the genre boundaries of, uh, of in each individual book of the Bible, and that's no less true and perhaps even more important when it comes to a book with such wild imagery like Revelation. So because of its genre, as apocalyptic, it is rich with images. It is full of symbolism. Uh, It it, it is indeed, it it seems to come to the Apostle John as something of a a dream or a vision. And so he reports what he saw, he says. And so it, it shouldn't surprise us then that what we get in Revelation is not propositional truths, And it's not like a plain linear narrative, it's images, it's scenes. And those images and scenes are intended to to convey some spiritual reality. And so we need to make sure that we're careful to interpret Revelation within the boundaries of the genre in which it's written, that of apocalyptic I just made reference to this, but another consideration is that uh, that I don't regard Revelation as a linear chronological sequence of events. But if you start at you know the first three chapters of Revelation are kind of there's you got the introductory kind of stuff in chapter one, and then chapters two and three are letters to specific churches in Asia, uh, and then starting at chapter four you get these kind of you know bright and vivid. Images, and I think if you read Revelation chapter four through twenty one or twenty two, excuse me, as uh, one thing after the other, actual historical event, I think that leads to some uh, some strange uh, and probably not accurate understandings of what's going on and what God is attempting to communicate. So I don't think we should see it as a linear sequence of chronological events. There's two images uh, or analogies that i've that I encountered in my sort of study of revelation in the past couple of months that I think are really helpful in in orienting ourselves around what's going on in revelation uh one one uh, analogy is that of uh, of a spiral staircase as opposed to a a a mechanical moving walkway right so this this author said. Um, it's not as though in the book of Revelation we're standing on a moving walkway that is carrying us horizontally past things and so we see one thing and then we see another thing and then we see another thing. It's more like we're on a spiral staircase that's viewing the same events or series of events, but as we get higher up the staircase, we sort of see a bit broader view. or we, we And there's kind of a, even a progression in the, the drama where it seems to get more and more intense and more and more uh either frightening or glorious as the case may be and so we're kind of gaining new insights as we go up this spiral staircase and i think that's a decent way to think about what's going on in revelation more than linear chronology of events it's we're kind of looking at the same patterns and themes and even sometimes the same events i think but from sort of a higher perspective and getting new insights as we go another analogy uh this one by Tim Chester, is that of the instant replay uh, in sports. If you think of, you know, a a touchdown pass um, that happens real quick and then they're going to go, Ooh, let's see that again. Right. And so they'll go to a camera that's maybe a little closer and they're going to slow it down and they're going to watch the, the guy catching the ball and then falling. Oh wait, we got to look closer is was he in bounds. So let's check a different camera. And so now we look at a different camera angle and this one's like focused on the sideline to see if he gets his feet down before he falls out. Uh, okay, look, so you're looking at the same event, but from different angles, different speeds, even different purposes. Like sometimes it's just a sort of revel in the, wow, that was an amazing catch. Sometimes it's to kind of analyze it. Wait, was this really a catch? Even though the rules of what is a catch keep changing. Um, sidebar. Uh, so uh, it, again, at times in Revelation, we are looking at the same event or sequence of events from different angles, from different perspectives, and even with a different aim in mind as we... Go. So I think uh, the word, the big fancy word that sort of summarizes that is recapitulation. So what we see in Revelation, I believe, are uh, some events uh, and then a recapitulation of those events from a different angle, a different perspective. So that's, again, a key part of the way that I approach the book of Revelation. Now, there are events, let me be clear, there are events prophesied in the book of Revelation that are clearly... Future that are things that clearly have not taken place. Generally, those future predicted events seem to be very closely connected to Christ's return, right to His second coming. And so, the things that haven't yet happened um, that are that seem clearly to be a prediction or a foretelling of future events seem to be very closely connected to Jesus's return. But the majority of the images and and symbols in the book of Revelation should be interpreted typologically. And to explain that, I'm going to quote uh, a pastor named Sam Ahmadi. He says this, The symbols in Revelation represent the types of events that recur throughout history. In other words, Revelation provides a symbolic description of the world in every culture and in every age. Rather than merely projecting things that are going to happen at the very end of history um, where it's intended to convey to us things that go on in this fallen world as Satan works uh, to, to try to destroy God and his people and as Christ reigns from heaven. Things that happen in this fallen world in every age and culture. One final word before we uh, go ahead and jump into the text of Revelation, and we're not going to cover very much text today, just rest at ease. We're only going to do three verses of of Revelation chapter 1. But before we, we do that, one overriding principle that should guide our study and interpretation of Revelation is this. Its teaching will always be consistent with the message and doctrines of the rest of the New Testament. In other words... We should not hang major theological um, ideas or beliefs or premises on things that uniquely appear in Revelation, for example. Um, the, the, The strangeness and the vividness of the images of Revelation cannot be the only thing that inform what we believe that Revelation is communicating. In other words, we need to read Revelation in the context of the rest of the New Testament. And we should expect that what we find there will be consistent with the message and doctrines that are revealed throughout the Gospels and Acts and throughout all of the letters uh, of Paul and the other apostles to the churches. It will be consistent with the message and doctrines of the New Testament. To quote Tom Schreiner to this point, he says this, "'The theology of Revelation fits the rest of the New Testament.'" when we untangle the apocalyptic language in the book, we don't find anything radically new in the message of Revelation. All the themes in the book are present elsewhere in the New Testament. And so that is an important sort of guiding principle for us uh, anytime we're going to read and try to interpret what's going on in Revelation. We need to make sure that, and it's a test of sort of our understanding of it. Is my understanding of what's going on in Revelation uh, consistent with, does it, Does it sit well with the other uh, teachings and and messages of the New Testament uh, as a whole? So, there's some preliminary thoughts. I know that's kind of a lot. Um, But let's go ahead and jump into the text. Um, This this introduction to Revelation is... um, it is a, is not really uh, again even a systematic sort of linear like thought by thought kind of thing. It's it's he's telling us a little bit about how he got the how the book of Revelation came to be, uh, and then he uh, introduces the one who who gave the, the message to him, namely the Lord Jesus. Uh, and so that's kind of what happens in the, the sort of prologue, if you will, of, of the Revelation. Um, and so we're just for now we're just going to do verse by verse rather than point one point two point three. All right, so we're going to look at each verse. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, uh, and try to draw out um, uh, some, some thoughts about what, how to approach Revelation and what is actually being communicated in this book uh, as, we, uh, as we go through it. So, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel... To his servant John. We'll pause right there. That's verse 1. So, the very first phrase is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, the word revelation, the title of this book, uh, is from the Greek apocalypse, which sounds a little bit like a word you might recognize. Apocalypse. Now, apocalypse, we've come to think of it as meaning something catastrophic, or even literally, the end of the world. That's not really what the word apocalypse means. What the word apocalypse means is an unveiling. It means a revealing. So quite literally, an apocalypse is a revelation. And that's why we have the, the title of the book as it is. And so when someone refers to John's apocalypse, we're not necessarily saying uh, John's belief about how everything's going to fall apart and the world's going to blow up. What we're saying is it's it's what was revealed to the apostle John. And so he's giving us this apocalypse. That is this revelation that was given to him, conveyed to him by the Lord. Um, there's another important truth in that very word. And the fact that it's the title of the book and the first word of the book, I think is important. It's, it's a revelation. It's not a covering. In other words, God is trying to show us something not hide something from us. To the extent that we approach Revelation like a mystery code that we have to crack, I think we're off on the wrong foot to begin with because God didn't give us something hidden to uncover. He revealed something to us in this book. It is intended to show something to the people of God. So that gives us the heart of God in even... Uh, why he gave this revelation to the Apostle John and passed it on to us. And again, thinking, recognizing that apocalyptic is a, a genre, there's a certain way that, the, that images uh, and pictures play out in apocalyptic literature. And if you approach it the wrong way, or the wrong sort of interpretive method, you're going to get some strange ideas. Um, there's a teacher named Michael Gorman who's, who shared something helpful here about how one particular image can mean something different in different contexts. So he uses the, 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 this, this sentence, "the bear, the bulls chewed up the bears. And he says the bulls chewed up the bears would mean something vastly different if you were at a zoo and giving a historical narrative account of what happened there. It would mean, I don't know. Thing animals got loose and something terrible happened, right? <laughs> the bulls chewed up the bears. Uh, if you were talking about the world of sports, that would be that image would mean something different. The bulls chewed up the bears would mean that there was a really decisive victory of one team over another. And yet again, in the world of uh, the stock market, the bulls and the bears represent uh, different particular realities. And so the bulls chewed up the bears in the world of stock market may mean the the, the success of some over the failure of others in, uh, in the way that the stock market went. And so we have this, this understanding that a particular image can mean a different thing in a different context. And so we need to make sure that we look at the images that are presented here as images within an apocalyptic sort of a vision right a a dream or vision that god gave to john and the images will mean something particular that they might not mean in a different context Um, and so revelation as uh, apocalyptic then gives us uh, artistic creative vivid images to express deep spiritual realities Right. So the images we find throughout the book of Revelation uh, are intended not just to convey information, but to capture our imaginations. To, to, to tap into something within us that makes us sort of um, want, want to cheer or, or you know shrink back, like to, to kind of be drawn into the drama. And so the, the, the images that we find in Revelation are this artistic, creative kind of expression of... Spiritual truths, again, that are consistent with the rest of the teaching of the New Testament. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the immediate question we have is, does that mean it's a revelation about Jesus Christ or that it's a revelation from Jesus Christ? And I don't think that we really have to fight hard to to choose between one or the other because, frankly, both of them are, are true. John told us the way that he received this revelation was that God gave the revelation to him, that is, Jesus Christ, and then Jesus Christ made the revelation known to John through an angel. Right? So it's, this, it's a mediated message. God gave the revelation to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ gave the revelation to an angel, and an angel gave the, uh, the revelation to John, uh, his servant. And so in that sense, as you follow the sort of uh, the pathway of the revelation and how it got from God to John and thus to us, um, it is from Jesus Christ, right? It is a revelation from the Lord Jesus as he entrusted this revelation to an angel who then entrusted it to John. But the content of the book of Revelation, as you will see if you haven't read the book recently enough to remember this, Jesus Christ is the star of the book of Revelation. He is front and center. His glory is seen and described in vivid and remarkable and beautiful ways. The, the activity of the throne room of heaven is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. They have not gotten over the cross and the resurrection in heaven. They are still singing songs about the Lamb who was slain, and the Lion who has conquered, that Jesus Christ is at the heart of this revelation. And so it is right to say that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. When we read this book, we see Jesus. And in fact, if we read the book and see something else, or we focus on some other piece, we've missed the heart of it. The heart of the book of Revelation is the person of Jesus Christ, shining in brilliant glory and power as he reigns over the universe. Jesus Christ is the heart of the revelation and the giver of the revelation. Thus, he's the one revealed and he's the revealer. Another word about God's purpose in this revelation is is seen in, in a couple of ways here. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him To show to his servants that his servants are simply Christians. The people of God in Christ are his servants. So God has given this revelation to show his servants the things that must soon take place, is the phrase he uses. We'll talk a little bit at, at, at the tail end of this message about exactly how soon that is. How soon is soon. But we see immediately that the heart of God in this revelation is to show something to his people, not to hide something from them. And so, again, we remember, we mark the role of symbolism in Revelation, the the, the consideration of its genre and the interpretive approach that we take. Uh, And the significance of numbers, that's another aspect of apocalyptic that comes up over and over and over again in Revelation, is numbers mean something specific. They're almost never literal, and I just say almost, because there's, uh, there's at least one occasion that I can think of that I think it's both literal and symbolic at the same time. You'll see what I mean later. But almost always, the numbers, the, a number of times that something happens, or a number of people in a crowd, or a number of years that an event will take place, almost always the numbers mean something. Rather than a wooden sort of conveyance of information, this will take three and a half years. Usually that means something. It's conveying a, a truth about that event. So we've got to, again, keep that in mind as we read Revelation. When you see, you know, 144,000 people in heaven, do we, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, therefore go, well, there's only 144,000 people that are going to make it? Better hope are among them. No, a thousand times no. That's not what that means. The number 144,000 represents something. It's telling us something other than an actual literal uh, numerical value. This will make more sense as we go. The book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants. And here's another uh, thing we have. He made it known by sending his angel. All right, so again, there's that the conveying of the message came from God, the Father, to Jesus Christ, to an angel, to John, and then he wrote it down and has given it to us. Um, But there's a word there. It's actually three words in the ESV. He made it known by sending his angel. The word behind that is a word that means signify, which means to show by signs or by symbols. So again, he didn't give this message just to tell people what would happen. He gave this message to show his people what would happen and what is happening and who Jesus Christ is, right? So, again, we just have to orient our minds around the visual uh, context in which the book of Revelation conveys information. He signified this by sending his angel to his servant, John. And we do uh, most... Scholars uh, uh, identify the John here with the Apostle John, the one who was in Jesus' inner circle during his earthly ministry, the one who wrote the the Gospel of John that's in our New Testaments, the one who wrote the three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, that are uh, almost at the back of the Bible just because they're short. Um, This is that same John. We think it was probably written late in the first century, like in the early 90s. AD uh under the reign of the, the Roman emperor Domitian and um there's good reasons to believe that but I don't want to get bogged down in discussing all those details I can have a conversation with you later if you're interested um but I believe that the author of this revelation is the apostle John uh and it's written toward the end of the 1st century and thus is probably the latest New Testament book that was written he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John right? Verse two, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So John introduces himself simply as a servant, right? Uh, of Jesus Christ. Uh, he introduced, he sent his angel to his servant, John. So he doesn't go to length to explain who he is. He doesn't call himself, you know, the apostle John, but frankly, that's in keeping with his writings because so in the gospel that he wrote, he didn't even name himself. He called himself. The apostle that, or the disciple that Jesus loved, right? So it, it's not out of character with John to not go to length to explain and really identify himself clearly. But he calls himself John, right? His his servant John, identifying himself as the one who serves the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And when he says here that he bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, I think here he's simply speaking of what he has given us in the book of Revelation. Uh, He he is saying here uh, that that, that Revelation is his written portrayal of the message that God gave to Christ, which Christ himself gave to John. And so as we read the book of Revelation, we are reading a direct disclosure from the mind and heart of God that he's given to John. And so we should remember to to treat it with care and with uh, reverence, not playing fast and loose with it, like let's make Revelation be as crazy as we can because we can make it say almost whatever we want it to say. This is from the mind and heart of God to his people, and he wants to show us something about who he is, about the nature of the world, and about the beauty and certainty of his coming kingdom. We should take this seriously. This is the word of God. I think that's what John is conveying to us here by saying that he, he uh, bore witness to uh, the word of God and the testimony of Christ and all that he saw. Yet another reminder of the visual nature of what we're going to read in Revelation. And then verse 3, he says, he offers a blessing. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now this is the first of seven blessings that appear in the book of Revelation. And as we've just made mention of the importance and the symbolism of numbers, that's not without significance, that there are seven blessings in the book of Revelation. You'll find that the number seven tends to represent Fullness, completeness, probably based on the creative pattern of God in making the world in six days and resting on the seventh. So, just as a seven day span represented the fullness of God's creation to begin the world, so seven represents something that has come to its completion or something that is full, right? It's by design, it is complete. And so the fact that there are, and he doesn't come around and say, this is blessing number one. I'm going to give you six more later. You have to sort of come to that by, by reading it and identifying, Hey, I've seen a blessing. I've seen another blessing. Hey, look, there's seven of these blessings. And so it's, it's subtle and it's nuanced, but that there are seven blessings pronounced on those who read the book. Uh, and hear the book and obey the book of Revelation, and blessings pronounced on the one who perseveres in faith, and blessings, on all these various things. And we'll come to them as we go through the text in the coming weeks. Um, The fact that there are seven blessings conveys, again, the fullness of God's plan, the fullness of blessing that belongs to those who are in Jesus Christ. And so it's the first of these blessings. And here, consider what it says. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, and those who keep what is written in it. And so God promises spiritual good to those who read, hear, and obey the book of Revelation. And so we ought to take it seriously. We ought to give ourselves to the task of reading and hearing and keeping what is in it. Now again, if you come to think of Revelation as almost entirely about events that are going to happen in the last few years before Jesus returns, it might almost be strange to think about what could I possibly do to keep the book of Revelation, right? Isn't it just announcing stuff that's going to happen later? And again, that is a hint that maybe that's not the right approach. There are There are exhortations throughout the book of Revelation, and indeed I find the book of Revelation to be one sort of consistent and whole exhortation to the people of God to persevere in faith amid the trials and sufferings and temptations that will come their way in this broken world as we are in a spiritual battle with the forces of evil. And so there are exhortations that are abounding in the book of Revelation uh, to endure and to uh, to have faith in Christ and to look with hope toward uh, the future kingdom that's, uh, that's coming. And so we should regard this blessing as a, a not a, a warning necessarily, but as a strong exhortation. If we hope to receive the spiritual good that God intends for us to have, we should read and listen and strive to obey the exhortations that he gives us in this word of prophecy, as he calls it. Now, to say it's a word of uh, prophecy gives us, again, another hint of the the sort of genre here. So we've got apocalyptic, we've got prophetic sort of blending together here. Um, which guides our interpretive approach to the book. Uh, to say it's a word of prophecy is not to say that everything said or depicted is a foretelling of a future event. There are certainly future events that are foretold uh, in the book, but we shouldn't regard it. Uh, since he calls it a prophecy, that means all of this is something that, has, that is yet to come. That's not what that means. An exclusively future orientation in reading Revelation will yield all manner of, of sort of strange... Uh, ideas, as I think we've seen. What we need to take from this is that it's a word of prophecy in that God has delivered this directly to his servant John, who has then passed it on to his people, and he intends us to find in it courage, faith, challenge, and uh, and, and an understanding of what's going on in our world. And then he says, the last thing he says here is, uh, for... The time is near. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed is the one who hears it and who keeps it. Why? Because the time is near. That reminds us of what he said in verse 1 about how God gave this revelation to John to show his servants what must soon take place. So whatever it is that's soon taking place is said here to be near. The time of that is near. And I probably don't have to remind you that there's been about 2,000 years that have passed since John wrote that sentence. The time is near. Well, 2,000 years have passed and Jesus hasn't come back yet. So did John get it wrong? I don't think so. I think something a little bit different is meant by soon and by near than what we immediately think of. When we hear the time is near, we think, oh man... Get your shoes on, throw your jacket on, and wait at the door because it's about to happen. And I don't think that's, that's necessarily what he intends, what God intends to convey to us in the nearness of things here. From one, For one thing, from God's perspective, 2,000 years is not that long. Seems to us like a long time because there's a whole lot of lifetimes, human frail lifetimes that take place within 2,000 years. I'm not going to live 2,000 years, right, unless God does something really strange and unusual. Um, 2000 years seems to us like a long time, but remember Peter tells us that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, right? So, um, from God's perspective, there's really only been like a couple of days that have passed since John wrote this. Um, so it still probably fits within the context of soon in that sense, in the perspective of God's view of, uh, of human history it doesn't seem soon to us, but we're, again, we're, we're getting uh, the veil peeled back here to see the world and history from God's perspective. That's a lot of what's going on in the book of Revelation. And so that's one thing to think about. Just Our perspective is very different than God's perspective when it comes to time. But I think the broader sort of overarching reality here is that when he speaks of something happening soon or the time being near, I think it's similar to how we'll find in other places throughout the New Testament of li- living in the last Days. We tend to think that means there's not very many days left between now and when Jesus is going to return. But really, the last days is the name of the sort of whole era that we live in, and indeed that all humans have lived in, between the two advents of Christ. In other words, between the time that he came in the first century and uh, died and rose and ascended, and when in at an unknown future time, he returns in power and glory. Those are his two advents, his two comings, and the whole period of time between those two comings is what the New Testament often refers to as the last days. So we are in the last days, but not necessarily in the sense that it's just around the corner, it's about to happen. And I think if we, again, if you have this, this idea that this is going to happen really fast, we start to get sort of frenzied about how we look at what's going on in the world and we start thinking, Oh, we need to read the book of revelation with uh, you know, news headlines in our other hand to be able to compare what's going on in the middle East, for example. Oh no, that's probably this prophecy being foretold. And I think that's, that's not what he's intending to convey in telling us that the time is near. The the imminence, if you will, the the immediacy of the return of Christ is not intended to to have us looking, checking our watch and looking at calendars and making predictions about when that's going to happen. And believe me, volumes have been filled trying to do that very thing. There was a guy in 1988, I can't remember the name of the guy, who wrote a book that was 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. And then in 1989... He published a second book called 89 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1989. You can't make this stuff up. How does a publisher actually publish that book? And who reads it? You just published one that said he was going to return last year, and he didn't. There's no end to the speculation right? and the predictions. And if we get the code just right, we'll know exactly when Jesus returned. Do you remember that Jesus told his people, nobody... Not even the angels in heaven, not even the son of man knows the day or the hour, but only the father in heaven. So to the extent that we're like trying to scan the news headlines to find out when Jesus returns, we are not just sort of wasting our time. We're actually kind of disobeying Jesus (laughs) who's like, don't worry about the day or the hour. It's not for you to know. So the point of the immediacy, the, the time is near, you know, this must soon take place. The point of that is this. Live ready. It's about preparation. It's not about prediction. It's about getting your heart and your life and your attitude and your hope fixed on things above, not things on earth. 1 Peter tells us that, right? Set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's, That's the hope. And that doesn't just mean, man, I hope that happens, it means I want to live my life in light of that coming reality. I want to orient my choices and my values and my spending and my relationships and my skills and my gifts around the imminence of Christ's return. And I don't mean by that the fact that it's going to happen tomorrow or I think it's going to happen next week or I think it's going to happen next year. I mean it could happen anytime. Because here's the deal, all the things that are necessary, that had to happen before Christ returns, have happened. Christ could come at any moment. And I think that's the sense of immediacy that we're intended to have as we read this. And that exhortation is no less true for the Christians who read this in the first century and the second century than it is for those of us who are reading it in the 21st century century. We should live with a prepared heart, ready for the return of Christ, to embrace it with joy and gladness and not caught off guard. Oh no, he came back already? I had so many things I was planning to get in order first, right? This is a call to live ready, to get your life ready, to to live with an eye toward the coming of Jesus Christ. A guiding question that should inform the way we read Revelation is this. How could each generation of Christians benefit spiritually from the reading and study of this book? Because listen, verse 3 pronounces the blessing of God on all who read it and hear it and who keep it. And so we should ask of any particular approach or interpretive method, could this interpretation provide spiritual blessing to each successive generation of Christians? Most immediately, how would this interpretation of Revelation have been of spiritual benefit to the first century readers and hearers of Revelation? If our understanding of what's going on in Revelation is like uniquely relevant to people who live in the moment of Jesus' return, then what was the point of the book of Revelation for the 2,000 years worth of Christians who have read it between then and now? Or between now and when that happens? The point is, God has given this book to his people for their spiritual good, not only for those who live in the the, the day of Christ's return. The images and depictions of Revelation are not designed to help us see particular historical events as fulfilling predictive prophecies. They are intended to reflect patterns and themes in the real world in every age, helping Christians to identify the cosmic spiritual battle that rages between the two advents of Christ to renew their allegiance to the universe's true king and to refresh their hopes in his coming kingdom. And every generation of Christians who reads this book should receive those same blessings. So a, lot, a, few, a last few words, I know I've run along here, but a last few words uh, to wrap up today. Revelation is not an encrypted mystery code intended to reveal a detailed timeline of historical events at the end of human history, but only accessible to those like savvy textual detectives who are able to crack the code. That's not what the book of Revelation is. I'm confident that that's not what God intended to give to his church. Here's what it is. It's a letter, first of all. It's a letter written to actual Christians in a particular time and place don't forget the first and second century christians who received this book urging them to keep the big picture in view in the midst of their suffering and their temptations that's the purpose of this book it's to give a glimpse to god's people of what's going on sort of behind the scenes as it were in the in, as it were in the spiritual or sort of cosmic realm We're getting a big picture idea of what God is doing throughout human history so that we'll be uh, encouraged and challenged to stay true and, and to stay hopeful. Here's three particular things, big things, that it assures Christians of. When we read Revelation, it assures us that Christ will be victorious over the forces of evil at work in the world. It assures us that we will be vindicated in the final judgment. No matter what suffering and injustice Christians around the world and throughout history experience, when the final judgment comes, they will be vindicated. They will be reigning and judging with Christ, and the wicked will be condemned, right? So Christians will be vindicated in the final judgment. And third, that they will dwell forever with God in an eternally restored creation. This is the grand sort of storyline and the grand scope and the big picture reality that God intends for his followers to receive and to see and to believe when we read the book of Revelation. We're beset on all sides by our own sin and by the temptations of the world and by opposition from the devil. Nevertheless, Christ will be victorious, Christians will be vindicated, and we will live with God forever in his eternal kingdom. This is what Revelation is all about. And if we read the book of Revelation and come up with something else, we've missed the point. That's the the business, if you will, of the book of Revelation. That's what Revelation is, is about. Uh, but the way it goes about that business is, is uh, highly imaginative and and, and uh, visual and dramatic and interesting and strange and at times grotesque and at other times stunningly beautiful. Surely a part of what God intended in conveying the book of Revelation to John uh, the, the Apostle and then to his church collectively is in the very experience of uh, considering its vivid images and dramatic storytelling. Perhaps more than any other book of the Bible, it can never be said that the book of Revelation is boring, right? This is high drama. This is exciting stuff, and God intends us to see ourselves in that drama, not as the star, but as those who have been invited along for the journey to watch and to celebrate the star, Jesus Christ Himself, So we ought to let our spiritual imaginations soar with the drama and the images of Revelation, but we must always labor to keep the drama and images tethered to the message of Revelation and the purpose of God in giving it to his people. In giving us Revelation, he did not give us a decoder ring to interpret the headlines. He gave us a story depicting all human history in terms of the cosmic spiritual battle that's raging all around us in order to assure us that Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, has conquered. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Let me pray.